Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Elaine Weary. You are a co-founder of Mebo. Mebo was a social chat app sold to Google 2012. You are from... I am from... Okay, for anybody who's out there, Willard, Missouri, which is close to Springfield, Missouri, um, originally on a goat farm. My mother wow. was a goat judge and then came out west to come to Stanford. Wow. Do you still have goats in your life? I do not have any goats in my life, and that is a good thing. Goats yeah. are a lot of work. Exactly. <laughs> so you sold Amiibo, and now you run Dandelion. And what is Dandelion? Is that chocolate? Dandelion chocolate. We make um, small batch single origin, origin chocolate um, with the Bean to Bar factory in San Francisco. Yeah. And you were also, you've been passionate for a few years about wanting to create a graphic novel. After Mebo, I spent two, three years working on a graphic novel about leadership and all of the um, mistakes and trappings that exist at every every level. Um, and so I got about 300 pages in and still um, working on it today. It's called 100 Mistakes. Um, and it's about all the mistakes that happen from the contributor, manager, director, VP, and C-level. So, so uh, I wanted to have you on this podcast uh, for a few reasons. One of them is I found a – I've had a number of founder friends who've come to me and said, oh, I just spent the entire day with Elaine. I just got the playbook. And uh, I feel like my company's, you know, going to the next level now. And so I kept saying, what is the playbook? What are these secrets? Uh, first off, h- how would you describe your superpower? Oh, my superpower. Um, I would say my superpower is probably quantifying or building systems around qualitative things. So I really love taking things that are super fuzzy or something that is hard to pinpoint and being able to build structure around it. So that's probably why I've ended up in recruiting and ended up on culture and ended up on product stuff. And Let's talk more. How did you end up thinking about that, man? Maybe specifically recruiting or team building? Mm, I think it just comes to me naturally. Um, I think that traditionally recruiting has been something that's been a second thought or people have just kind of intuited their way through it. I think the same thing is true for product. And so I just really enjoy kind of mulling on something and then starting to build systems, especially I really, really, really love building systems around things that are somewhat delicate where it's just like the system is really going to matter and you can get it wrong very easily. And so there's something very special about it that you want to be able to preserve, which is why I really love product culture type challenges. So we're getting into a bunch of those things. Let's get into recruiting first. What do people think about when they think about recruiting? They think, hey, I went to MIT. Let me farm from people who went to MIT. (laughs) How do you sort of, when you come into a company, what are sort of the biggest misconceptions they have about recruiting or the most common advice or systems you you end up implementing? Yeah, for sure. Um, I remember a very, very long time ago when I was first starting out as a founder, I think I was having a conversation with Howard Hartenbaum. It was a long time ago. And I was just like, hey, tell me what are the biggest mistakes that you see most founders making? And this is, you know, back in my first, first, first few days, I don't even know if we had taken money yet. And he said, honestly, you know, most founders, I know they just spend all of their time doing recruiting. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, that sounds really grim, right? Like I'm doing other things right now. I'm on the product side. I'm on the engineering side. Like, please do not tell me that my life is going to be spent doing recruiting. And I found that I think at the time he had estimated that most people spend like 50 to 60% of their time just doing recruiting. And I found that that was actually conservative, that most founders I know, especially in the early, early days, spend much more time doing that. And, but nobody talks about it. And the thing that I find fascinating about startups in general is there's this pattern, which is people hire their initial team. And then about six to nine months later, they realize, whoops, right? Something went wrong. And so then they end up rehiring. And so if you can preserve that amount of time, you don't realize it on day one. I get most of my phone calls about six to nine months in where it's just like that. I don't know what I did wrong, but this isn't right. 
And so trying to come up with a process to be able to get there, I think is, is really interesting. It's essentially the DNA of the company. What did they do wrong? Why did they make this hire? Oh, wow. Um, there's so many things that people do wrong. So people assume that they know whether they like a candidate in the first five minutes. They don't have a structure around it. They don't think about what this person is going to do as early as the job description. They don't do 90 day plans. They don't do, there's just, you know, if you go in, you just kind of wing it. And then the hiring process is the most fundamental process and the most important one to get right when building a culture. So, so let's take those one by one. How do I not let my initial um, yeah, gut instinct, oh, he or she is likable. How do, how do I not protect against that? Within the first five minutes, people generally have a reaction. And they say, hey, if this person is like me, you have a tendency to lean forward. You have a tendency to smile. You have a tendency to have a shared vocabulary already. And it's easy just to like to fall into that. And so initially in the first five minutes, your job is to be able to challenge that first response. So whatever response you're having to somebody, if you like them, you should immediately pull back and you should make sure you're going harder on them. And so making sure you have a checklist to make sure that you're not skipping around any of your questions. And then on the converse, if you have somebody that you don't like, um, which happens, then it's really important to make sure that you're leaning forward, that you're smiling, they're giving the benefit of the benefit of the doubt, and you're envisioning a world in which this could still work out. Just so you make sure that both sides are, are equally hard. So you come into a startup, it's five people, it's 10 people. They don't have a process about recruiting. They're sort of, hey, I'll talk to the person, then you talk to the person. What are the most important things people should think about when implementing a process? What is the problem? There are lots of different parts. The most important part to me is getting is making sure that people realize that there are five qualities that are necessary for a fast-moving, for-profit organization. And those five things, um, I refer to them as star one, are skills. Um, do you have the skills to get the job done? Team which is do you have the team skills or do you have the ability to have constructive influence within a team setting? Adaptability, which is can you move with it? Can you learn on the fly? Can you thrive in extenuating circumstances? Results, which is goals and strategy. And 110%, which is can you give 110%. So those are the five qualities that are super important within hiring. And so within that, in order to make sure that you are able to hire quickly, every single team chooses which three are the most important. So if you are hiring for engineering, you're probably going to emphasize skills, probably team, probably 110%, and you're going to sacrifice a little bit on adaptability results. And you could say, hey, I'm going to do all four, I'm going to do all five, but that just means that your interview process gets longer and longer, and you want to make sure you're not losing candidates. And then on top of that, um, you evaluate every single one of those different qualities on a one to five scale, five being high. And so the idea of it is that it's not a linear scale, that if somebody's a three, it's in the top 25, 30%. And then to get to a four, it's an even smaller number. And then to get to a five, it is the cream of the crop. And the way that I define that is that in the three, you know, you're super, super strong. Getting a three is an amazing number. But to get to a four, you have to show that you have changed the team for the long-term future. And to get to a five, um, you have changed the organization. And so... The goal within that is to be able to say, a lot of people think, oh, I can get a five if I work super, 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 super hard. And that is exactly what I do not want. I do not want to have somebody who has been killing themselves doing multiple late nights and is all of a sudden expecting to get a five. That's just not going to happen. My goal is in order to be able to get to a three, four, five, you have to think beyond yourself and you have to think, what does my team need? And then the next step after that is, what does the organization need? And so you have to be strategic about how you apply yourself. So one of the examples that I really like to give is for a dishwasher, right? Like, okay. Um, if you apply these, this metric, that means that a dishwasher should be able to change the organization. And so how would you, how would you say that? How would you say a dishwasher? And the thing is that if your dishwasher is, if you don't have a good dishwasher, you know it, but how can you say that the dishwasher is actually the cream of the crop? And for me, it's just like, Hey, you know, an amazing dishwasher should be able to hear the clink, a sound that's 
awry in the dishwasher and be able to tell us before the machine has broken down that this is an issue. And if they do need to repair it, maybe they've created a playbook so it does get repaired. Maybe when the repairman has come, they ask for two of whatever parts have been replaced. Maybe they have eventually led to their being, instead of be, having downtime of 2% or 1% or whatever it is, they've managed to get it down to 0.5%, which in turn leads to better reviews, better service, all of those things. So the intent is that when somebody comes into the organization that we've already thought about how can they get to a five and we've made it possible for every every single person to be strategic. When you see people that are sort of scenarios where people are not set up for success, what are common common reasons why people aren't set up for success? The other thing is that the one to five is the minimum, right? So when the manager is coming into the job, the first thing we do is we ask them, hey, define what a five is for your role. And so they go through, they think about how this role is strategic, and then they are responsible for writing the annual review first. So in a year or so, they are going to have to write an annual review. And there's no reason that you should have to wait 365 days to determine what is success. So our goal is, hey, you write the review in in advance and you say, what does five look like? backtrack into what does the 90 day look like? And then you backtrack into the job description. So the goal is by the time the job description is there, it's not filled with hypotheticals, but it is, and it's not just filled with, Hey, these are the approximate roles and responsibilities or whatever it is. It is a very meaty reflection of whatever the the role is. Right. And why are 90 day plans so important? Oh my gosh. Um, love 90 day plans. And why not 30 day plans or six month plans? Mm, I'm going to tell you the, the dirty secret about 90 day plans is that most of the time after 30 days, the 90 day really isn't that important. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) But when it is important, it's really helpful to say, hey, we're at the 90-day mark right now. And I was expecting to be here. And we're actually here. And it takes a little while for that gap to appear. And 30 days, if you have somebody who is struggling a little bit, 30 days is just a little too soon. You can kind of wiggle your way through it and figure things out. But at 90 days, it should become much more apparent. And it's really helpful if you've had that written in advance. But a lot of times after 30 days, it's okay. And so it's, it's, a, it's a way to cut bad hires, basically? Yeah. And to have that conversation up front, right? Because if you, the earlier you can identify um, a poor hire... And you can get them onto another organization or another track that's a better fit. It's going to be less pain for everybody. Yeah. So we've talked about what we're looking for in candidates. We've talked about how to set them up for success. How are we even finding them in the beginning? How are we sourcing them? What, what are, what's something not obvious that we're doing? I think everybody's looking for a magic bullet when it comes to sourcing. There is no magic bullet. It is just you have to try all approaches. Passive recruiting is definitely leads the, the strongest the strongest candidates. I think one thing I struggled with is originally, especially as a founder, is how to make it scale. And how do you recruit? You know, originally, maybe you only need to hire for your first 10 or 20 people. But what happens when you need to hire a team of like 10 to 20? And that's that's where you really feel it. And the approach that worked best for me was what I would do at the beginning of the week is we had our funnels. We knew how many candidates it would take to be able to fill a role. And we had broken it down through the entire process. And so I knew that in order to be able to make one hire every so many, you know, over so many weeks, I needed to identify 100 to 200 candidates to be able to make that work. So I would go to my recruiter and I would say, hey, listen, here's a long list of keywords And I would identify three or four approaches that I felt like they could go to Twitter. They could go to um, all of these mediums where they could be able to source so many hundred candidates that week. And then I would take the elephants, which are the people that I consider to be the, if this person just landed in my lap, I would hire them immediately. And I would try and make sure that I had two to three coffees with the elephants every single week. And I found that if I didn't do that, if I just said yes to every single coffee, then I just ended up being the most caffeinated person. So you have a, a, a spreadsheet that says... Like, I did. I just, I completely, I completely, I had a spreadsheet and it was a map of, you know, the entire JavaScript community yeah. circa like, you know, 2005 to 2010. 
Did you tell some of them that they were elephants? No, I never told anybody they were elephants. <laughs> but if they had coffee with me, they, they probably knew. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know who you are. So you find the candidates. You are interviewing them. How, how do we think about interviews? How do we think about building a process around interviews? So the one to five is, is the, just the start of it. You do your job descriptions. You get everything else ready. The other part of it is the simulation. The simulation are, is a real-world set of exercises that reflect what you would expect this person to do in the first 30 to 60 days in their role. So, for instance, if you were hiring for our office manager simulation, we would have them come in and be able to put together a plan for how to put a sign on the front of the building. And so, on the one to five scale, somebody who was, you know, if I, if the other test of a simulation is that any smart, well-intentioned person for this role should fail. So, by that rule, I should fail our office manager simulation, right? We, so when we first came up with the simulation, we ran up um, a bunch of people, including our office manager, and we said, hey, listen, you know, here's our set of exercises. I, t- I tested it out, and then our office manager at the time tested it out. And we said, how would you find a new sign for the building? And my approach was to open up the phone book, say, hey, here are three different sign companies, be able to come up with a quote for all of them, et cetera. And our office manager was just like, you have absolutely no idea. If you really want to be able to have a good office manager, the first thing they do is they go to your next door neighbor and they say, hey, I'm thinking about installing a sign. Who do you recommend to install the sign? Because you have all sorts of politics at the street level of where your sign goes, who's putting a sign up where, and you've just given them a heads up that you might be putting a sign out and giving them an opportunity to get ahead of that beforehand. So, and then there are restrictions, and then there are all sorts of things at the city level to do. So it's just trying to come up with something with that a level of specificity. What's behavioral interviewing? Behavioral interviewing? Oh my gosh, you definitely need to... You don't know what behavioral interviewing is. Where have you been? Um, behavioral interviewing is where you are asking questions about things that have happened in somebody's past as opposed to hypothetical questions. So if I said, instead of saying, hey... What would you do in the first 90 days of this role? If I say, hey, what did you do in the previous 90 days of your last role? That gives me a really good indication um, what your actual performance is, not how good you are at interviewing. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And when you think about checklists, you think about checklists against the star, the metrics? Mm-hmm. Yep. And put, put checklists up against um, every single one, every single skills team, adaptability results, 110%. And then it varies a little bit based upon the leadership level. Like you need to be able to have your checklist modified based upon whether you're hiring somebody who's a manager, director, etc. And what's your philosophy on who should be interviewing such how many interviews, such the process? My general philosophy is that if you have more than two people interviewing at a time, it's too much. It feels like you're digging up, but I'm flexible whether you do one or two people. So in Mebo, I felt like we had the one to five down. We had, for the most part, the star one down. We had great simulations. We even were pretty good about our job descriptions. The one thing that I discovered afterwards is you want to make sure everybody is calibrated. So it's really easy to be able to say, oh, everybody got ranked a three or whatever, four. Oh, you know, we could say thumbs up, move forward. But the issue we had is that we had some people who had only been interviewing for maybe two weeks and other people have been interviewing for two years and we didn't necessarily know whether we could trust their scores. And so right now at Dandelion, my best use of TaskRabbits and my best hack is I actually bring in TaskRabbits every six months or so. And I have calibration where I bring in the people who are about ready to become new interviewers. And we take unsuspecting TaskRabbiters and we behavioral interview them. <laughs> and then we tell them, thank you so much. Give them a free hot chocolate. And then we compare our scores. And then so inevitably, <laughs> the first time you do this, everybody's just all over the place. They're just like, I'm a one, I'm a two, I'm a four, I'm a five. But the conversation is super interesting. And so I say, okay, anybody who rated this person, you know, one or two, why did you rank them a one or two? And the answer is like, oh, well, they said that they would quit or they said that such and such. And then all the people who rated them a four or five are like, holy cow, what questions did you ask to be able to get there? And so you just continuously calibrate to make sure that the team is um, interviewing consistently. 
And typically, just your last question, what questions you're asking to get to a four or five? Like, what are those questions that people are typically asking? Or what are your favorite interview questions? For instance, what's the greatest impact you've ever made in somebody else's career? Tell me about your greatest accomplishment. What did you do to get there? I think if I, I think my favorite questions are interviewing managers. I love interviewing managers. And my favorite question for them really is, Hey, you know, tell me about the greatest impact you've made in somebody else's career. I also like asking them what's the longest somebody's ever reported to you and who was it and why? Because I really like it. For being able to make sure that you have a really, really good fit with your manager is super important. Um, And a lot of people think that interviewing is only one way and it's two way. Yeah. So making sure that you have your questions ready to go to to ask your prospective manager in advance is super important. So trying to get those. Those are my two fast fast questions. Should we go through the five star qualities and pick one question for each? Yeah, sure. Skills, skills is, you know, if you're interviewing for engineering, it's just a time for you to be able to say, hey, listen, here's some code, spot the bugs or whatever it is, or do a whiteboard exercise. Team, the question I might ask is what's the most constructive piece of feedback that you received in your previous role and what made it so helpful? Adaptability would be, hey, tell me about a time you had to pick a new tool for the team or tell me about a time. My favorite question on adaptability is actually tell me about in your previous role, how did your last day differ the most from your first day and why? Because I want to see how much they stretched in that. Results, um, a good question is, tell me about a time you had to put quantitative metrics around something very qualitative or nebulous. And then 110% is super easy. And that's just tell me about your greatest accomplishment. And that's the one that I don't, it's usually about one year of work to move anybody up from one score to another. And so the place where I don't compromise is on the 110%. I'm looking for somebody who is almost always a, a three or above. If they are lower than a three, that tells you they're just not enthusiastic about the role or something. Yeah. And when you're hiring, you know, the first 10 hires versus first hundred hires, are there different qualities that you would or wouldn't compromise on? Yep, definitely. Um, if I'm hiring somebody in the first 10, I always make sure that they can pick out new tools and they can start from scratch regardless of the role, because otherwise that's, that's a real skill. And after you've hired the first 10, 20, 30 people, I'm more interested in, can they find bugs and can they fix existing systems? What, what's something that is, um, non-obvious, it's like a really red flag for you, but other people may not see it as a such a red flag. I think there are lots of red flags out there. I think the ones I always listen to are when people talk poorly about their manager. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all know that, but you know, but it's that's just a really hard spot. Right. Especially in an interview context. Yeah. One question I've seen asked about is like, what would you do if you were CEO of the last company? And sometimes you sort of get at, oh, they would be like, oh, they made all, I don't know, you can sort of see how charitable or uncharitable they are as they sort of review that. But that's not a behavioral interviewing question. Right. So, <laughs> So you, and you only want to ask behavioral interviewing questions? I only want to ask you a behavioral interviewing question. The idea is that the best indicator of future success are previous accomplishments. Yeah. yeah. So we can't change? You can do whatever you want, right? It's your, it's your team. It's your culture. Right. No, <laughs> right. But in general, in general um, I definitely emphasize behavioral interviewing because it's really right. easy to fake those questions. Yeah. It is interesting. So you're an investor. So how does this compare to when you evaluate entrepreneurs? I think the thing that I really look for is I look for team skills and I look for people who have grit. And especially since I'm investing early, early on in teams, I, I probably could care more about the market. I probably could care a lot more about other things. But for me, it really just being able to get great and be able to get the team portion of it right is super, super key. I also look for people who are aware of their blind spots. Because yeah. if you're a single founder or even you know, two co-founders, you're going to have a blind spot. And I want to make yeah. sure that they're aware of it when they're bringing yeah. it to the table. And they have a management. Yeah. And so, do you think the STAR framework applies or is it sort of different? modification of that. I'm still figuring that out. And that's one of those things that I'm really excited about right now. Um, I think the team definitely applies the team aspect of it. I think skills is a little bit less important because everybody's just figuring it out and everything changes so quickly. I think adaptability is absolutely huge. I think results is absolutely huge. I think 110% is absolutely huge. 
no one's ever been able to figure out the formula for successful founders because there've been so so few of them and they, they were all so different. But if somebody could do it, if somebody could do it, I know, I know, I think about it all the time. I'm just like, ah. Oh. <laughs> so, but it's one of the things that makes me excited about it. I mean, I just yeah. love, I love, yeah. So one thing you also talked about is that the best indicator of how long someone will stay in the organization is their experience on the first day. So unpack that idea and then how that informs your onboarding philosophy. Yep. So at some point I had a really experienced HR person say that they had done tons of studies to determine any factor that had a correlation with how long somebody stayed within an organization. And so they did all sorts of things to be able to look at somebody's ultimate tenure and they looked at their pay, they looked at their previous education. They looked at the seniority of the role. They looked at all these different factors and they found at that time that the greatest indication of how long somebody would stay with an organization was their experience on the first day. And I don't know whether, I don't know what the cause and effect is of that. I don't know if really organized companies on the first day are going to be better at just going to be stronger organizations overall, but I definitely took it to heart. And that's something where where the 90 day plan comes in for me and just making sure that somebody can hit the ground running on, on day one. I think one thing that is super important to know is for culture stuff, people often look for these really easy hacks to be able to like, hey, we have free t-shirts. Hey, we do foosball all the kombucha. time. Hey, we yeah. do, you know, whatever, kombucha, great, yeah. right? And it's just like, I could tell you what we do or what I have done on the first day. But the truth is that like, it, what really matters is what is authentic to your organization. So it's not going to not gonna be perfect for, my solution is not going to be good for everybody else. But talk more about when you advise startups, team of five, team of 10, how should they be thinking about culture right then and there? And then how, how does, how does that evolve over time? What are the, what's your culture mm-hmm. philosophy? Yeah. yeah, for sure. I think the most important part of, I think that people vastly underestimate how much time founders spend hiring. And I think it's one of those dirty secrets that nobody wants to talk about, but I think anybody who's been in a fast growing organization will say, yeah, I just, I spent the first two to three years only doing phone screens, only doing interviews making sure that everybody on the team could do interviews. I don't think it was until I, maybe we were at year two or three within Mebo that I felt like we actually had a core group of people who could do interviews that I trusted with their scores. It just takes forever. And I think everybody everybody just underestimates how much time it takes to get the hiring right. And the number one secret to a great culture is actually linking the hiring process with your annual review. So if you are, the way that you evaluate candidates it's if you evaluate people by a certain set of values and then you end up using a different different criteria to be able to do the annual review, that's going to seem incongruous. And those two systems are going to be competing with each other. And so one of the reasons that hiring is so important is that and getting the values around your hiring so is so important is because that ultimately you want to be able to have that inform your annual review process as well and have those both be exactly the same. Let's unpack your annual review slash performance review philosophy and, and practice. I love performance reviews. The one thing that I like to do with performance reviews is um, I like to have them be on the person's work anniversary as opposed to be once a year. Otherwise, you have everybody's work anniversary happen in July. Everybody goes in their best behavior in June. All the managers get super swamped um, and it's just not a very healthy process. So I try and have it where we have rolling reviews throughout the year. And the other thing that I do on the review process is I decouple the performance review from compensation. And so this especially happens when you have a hiring process and a review process that are in conflict. People are like, I'm happy to go through your silly review process and, you know, do whatever you want as long as I get a raise at the end, right? And so my goal is to be able to have it so that people already know how they're going to be evaluated. There are no surprises. That's always the goal. And then I want to have everybody be able to listen as much as possible. And so if, if, if people are just saying, hey, listen, I want to be able to get this review to find out if I got my bonus or what to find out whether I got my promotion, 
that isn't going to be a really great conversation. So my goal is to decouple that and to give bonuses and to give compensation increases and give promotions based upon the needs of the business and based upon merit and to do that as timely as possible. So people aren't waiting for the next review to find out what actually happens. So give them, figure out comp before they do the review, basically? I figure out comp when I feel like somebody has leveled up in the organization. So it doesn't have to be before, but it just has to be, hey, if I feel like, you know, if I feel like somebody has leveled up, then I'm going to make sure that that surfaces as soon as possible. But at the same time, I really... The part that I emphasize is, hey, a business only needs so many VPs or it only needs so many directors. And so if the business need isn't there, then I want to make sure that people are aware of that. And that's why most organizations end up with multi-tracked career trajectories where somebody can progress on the technical track or the skills track and somebody can progress on the uh, managerial or the people track as well. Right. So you fit raises to business need. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there are some exceptions to that. So if you're working with something where... You're working with perhaps with engineers or you're perhaps working with like a dandelion chocolate you know, baristas or whatever it is, right? There's some things where you have leveling and it's just understood that once you get to a certain metric and it's very, 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 very well laid out, you'll automatically increase by such right. and such amount. That's a little bit different. For roles outside of that, I try and make sure that we identify when somebody's leveled up and then make that, especially if we need it, and make that level up immediate. Right. And what's my what should be my comp philosophy is it? Five percent, ten percent startup, and thinking about building it over time. In the beginning, is it lower salary, high, higher equity, or what, what's your? Oh gosh, comp, comp philosophies. Yeah. Uh, oh boy. I mean, equity is always great. I love yeah. equity. I think my general compensation philosophy is probably going to be different than what you hear. Otherwise, there are all sorts of metrics and databases that you can depend upon right now to be able to figure out. Hey, am I? I'm at market rate right now, or whatever it is. I think for me, it's about trying to figure out what is fair within your organization, and so. People tend to care more about where they stand within the organization than they do actually outside of the market. Envy is local. Yeah, Yeah. it's so true. It's so true. So for me, it's just like, okay, figure out which role is always going to be king or queen within your organization and say, okay, we are going to base everybody else's salary based upon that. So if you're in an engineering-centric organization, then you lead with the engineers and you make sure that they that's where you key everything off of. Um, if you're in a sales organization, then maybe it's off of the sales. But I just have a spreadsheet and it just maps out, hey, this is, you know, this is the engineering. This is the 100%. You know, this is what I'm going to key everything off of. And then I say every for everything else, maybe it's 95% or maybe there's yeah. different leveling or, you know, and figure it out from there. So should people know each other's salaries? <laughs> um, or just how do you think about transparency within an organization broadly? I think it's leading to yes. I think if people are really designing their leveling and doing their comp right from the very beginning, it's leading, it's gradually leading to yes. And I think that ideally we'd all publish our job, our salaries in the job description, or at least talk about what the salary is in that initial phone screen conversation. And, and you say ideally so that one culture, you think culture would be better into, we'd all learn from it basically is we'd have standards and. Yeah. I think, I think what happens most typically is you end up with somebody who's really strong at negotiating at the end and you end up making compromises for that person as opposed for the person who isn't necessarily as good. And just to be able to treat everybody fairly, it makes more sense just to say this is what we're, you know, at the very minimum saying this is what the last person in this role made. Right. And when you see cultures break down, wh- why do they happen? Or wh- what are some of the non-obvious reasons perhaps why, why they happen? Like it's obvious, you know, people aren't on the same page, you're not clear values, but what are other th- reasons why? I think everything about a culture, I think especially early on, there are, you know, there's the hiring, there's decision-making, there's your pace, there's how you let people go. And I think for the most part, especially for the first two to three years, if you get your hiring right and you get your reviews right, everything seems to swim along nicely and to be working until you get to goals and alignment. And so at some point, everything is just like, hey, 
such and such person didn't get their they didn't deliver on this. Hey, this person has hasn't performed up to to what they were supposed to do, and it's re, it's really hard to be able to all of a sudden build an alignment within the organization. Right. And that's where I think people in a culture start saying, oh, our communication isn't good. Or, oh, we're too slow making decisions. Or, oh, we're doing... And honestly, the truth is that once you get to about 100, 200 people, you have to start building systems around how you share and how you make goals be visible. Right. And that's an actual thing. Right. And whether you're in the OKR system or whether you're in some other system, there comes a point where you need to be able to roll that out across the organization and it can no longer be an afterthought or you can't rely upon the post-it notes and you have to have a lot more transparency within the organization. Works with people or come across people who they're sort of out for themselves, or, you know, looking to use the, the job to develop and so aren't putting a ton into the company unless it affects them personally. But the sort of paradox there is, and, it, and maybe the insecurity there is that they won't be at the company that, for that only for two years or so. I try and do references to be able to figure out who those people are and not hire them. And then when we do have somebody like that to make sure that we don't have them in the organization for very long. So a couple of reasons there. One is how do you let people go early and often? What's your philosophy? <laughs> I think that is probably one of the most overstated and underapplied pieces of advice out there. And the thing is that if you have really, really, really tried to hire and you've been super thoughtful, you know how special it is when you get to the finish line and you have somebody who's on your team and you know how much energy has gone into their 90 day. And so if I have somebody that I feel like is an amazing person and got through all those hoops and they're not doing well at the 90 day mark, I'm probably going to try and figure out why. And I might try and find another track for them within the organization, or I'm going to be a lot more thoughtful. So yes, of course I say early and often, of course I say that, but in practice, I'm probably far more generous because I, I think that that person is really, really talented and they right. wouldn't be here unless I had a good reason for it. And I want to see if I can make it work still. Let's say, you know, three weeks go by and you're like, you just hired someone and you're like, oh my God, this yep. person's terrible. Do you do, are you doing monthly one-on-ones, weekly one Like when are weekly you doing one-on-ones, weekly, weekly one-on-ones? Weekly one-on-ones. What is your philosophy to one-on-ones? What makes a good one-on-one? I have a notion of what is necessary for a person to be in good standing. <laughs> What's that? that is how they're done. I, you know, they're just like little tiny things in an organization that everybody keys off of. So it's like, have they gotten their exp- have they gotten their expense report in? <laughs> have they submitted their interview feedback? Have I, you know, all those tiny little things that just like it's probably annoying somebody. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, listen, where are you? <laughs> right? And I just go through all of those, and then we have a sense of kind of what the underlying goals are and whether we're tracking to them, and then it kind of opens up into a longer conversation of like, hey, I have you know, just like a lot of other people. I have a spreadsheet with every person's name on it. And throughout the week, I've been writing down the little tiny notes and things that I wanted to be able to pick up. And so instead of sending them 20 emails per week, then we just do it all in their one-on-one. Right. And so, and if they're just keep underperforming, you'll just let them know week after week, I guess, before the 90-day plan. (laughs) (laughs) No, if you're not, if somebody's not performing, then there is a performance improvement plan. Performance improvement plan. plan. Um, Honestly, the thing is that in most organizations, the performance improvement plan is what the lawyer recommends so that in 30 days you can let someone go. And that is not, that is not healthy. That is not the way it should be, but that's just kind of how it happens in practice. But for me, I think the performance improvement plan, you sit down and you say, Hey, listen, this is the, expectations of the role. This is the observed performance. And this is necessary. This is what is necessary as a next step to be able to bridge the gap. And the thing is that whenever a manager or a leader comes to me and they're just like, Elaine, I've given up. I've done everything. We've had one-on-ones. We've done whatever. Like this is not going to work out. You know, I really want to be able to let this person go next week. My answer is like, have you done a PIP? And so they're just like, Elaine, the last thing I want to do is a PIP. I've already given this person the feedback. We can't afford it. I hate it. Like I really don't want to do it. I'm just like, have you done the PIP? And so then they do the PIP 
And begrudgingly, no one ever is happy about doing a PIP, and I understand that. And then I would say that the success rate I have with people who do a really, really good PIP is probably around like 75%. Success rate meaning they stay on? They stay on. Wow. So it was, what, what is a good and PIP? On the, and the thing is that like I know that in my head, I know that when so, – like. I know that that's a weird number because that means that I'm probably working with a junior manager or who's somebody who didn't set expectations right. But at the same time, we've all been there and I'm never, ever going to judge somebody based upon that. It's just like, if we can get everybody on a good path and do a fresh start, awesome. Like this person already has the relationships inside the organization, right? If anybody survives a 30 day pip, like there's, you know, you have to want to be able to step up to the plate. You have to have a ton of goodwill to do that. And you have to be open to feedback. Yeah. Like my heart goes out to the I'm people. Crying. I mean, it's, it's kind of moving. I mean, no, it's true <laughs> yeah, though. It is, right? It is, like, yeah. And especially since in most organizations, that's just like the way to write somebody off, which is terrible. Right. That's not the way it should be. Totally. Yeah. So what are the elements of a great pip? I think the thing that's specificity for sure. And so a lot of people are like, I need you to have better communication skills. And I'm just like, okay, well, how are your communication skills in that statement right now? All right, let's unpack that a little bit. Let's get granular. Um, And so it's just like, okay, let's really break that down. What does that mean? Does that mean that... Is that because in a meeting, they're not giving constructive? Does it mean that they're talking about problems? Are they talking yeah. about solutions? Does that mean that their body language is off? Like, what is it? So the more specific they can get, the better. The other thing is that oftentimes it becomes a pile-on of all the feedback that they intended to give for the last six months, and they haven't. And I'm like, okay, let's like, let's try and just like sort this into two or three things. Like, what is the root to maybe three things this person can really focus on and then everything else usually it's just like so give one example one is like yeah. communication at meetings or, or something or you know being proactive with stuff yeah, and then they like, do it or if you don't have if you don't have, if you don't have good team skills you're probably not doing so hot on adaptability you're probably not doing so hot in results right but it's just like let's find the one thing that's really pulling us down right now and let's focus on that and let's get that to a better spot as opposed to giving this person like a huge pile on about how they're a horrible person yeah how should I be thinking about doing references? Should I sit someone down and say blink three times if I should hire this person? Or what is it? No, 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 no. Don't do that. I'm just How should I be doing references? <laughs> um, I think it varies depending upon what level you are doing references at. So if you're doing references at a, you know, for somebody who is an individual contributor, you can say, hey, give me your three references and make sure that at least one of them is a manager. But as you get farther and farther up, if I'm talking to somebody who is a VP or a C-level, I want to be able to choose the references. So it's like, hey, I go through the entire process, and that's great. And I've asked them all sorts of questions. And I'm like, who are the three people that you've worked with the most? And I've jot- jotted that down. And then when I get to the end of the process, I say, hey, happy to take whatever references you want to give me, but here are the references of the three people that I want. And then for the references itself, the references are really funny because you essentially ask the same question 10 times. So anybody who is listed for a reference, they're going to want to talk positively nicely about the person no matter what and so you essentially figure out a way to ask tell me the weakness of this person in a more positive light and so it's like tell me what recommendations you would have if you were going to be continuing to work with this person for the next year tell me about the last time that you had to give this person coaching feedback or whatever it is and then when i'm hiring for leadership leadership is a little bit different so when you're getting to the manager and that level there are some things that the references become really really important And the three questions that have to get asked for a leader in a reference are, you say, describe the ideal job for this person, the ideal role for them. Then you say, hey, describe the ideal company culture for them. And then the last one, which is super important, is tell me about how this person reacts to frustration. (laughs) Because especially at the leadership level, you really need to know that because they are going to get frustrated for sure. And a lot of times when somebody has been in a leadership level, they haven't necessarily been in a context where they've had some downward pressure on their behavior. And so you kind of want to see, you know, how, how well they handle that stress. What about a question like, if this didn't work out, 
in three months or six months. Why did it not work out? Yeah, you could ask that. I'm totally yeah. good with that. I'm totally good with that. For that, you're okay with anti-behavioral questions? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the behavioral is better. Like, the other thing that's really nice about references is that I can go through and fact check, because I've done the behavioral, I can go through and fact check any questions to make sure that something doesn't slip through the cracks. Is it fair game, by the way, to ask basically anybody? when Even, like, early in a company, can you ask people they didn't list? Or do you think it's... I just don't do it. I, I think you could, though, if you wanted to. And I think that's why people do backdoors so often. Right. It's just like, hey, listen, if I happen to know a backdoor, of course I'm going to pick yeah. up the phone and I'm going to ask. Right, but you're not going to, like, seek out... Uh... Yeah, you don't, you don't but out I think if you can do it at that level, especially early on, like yeah. if you're hiring your first 10 people, I probably would. Right. But I think for the manager and the leadership track, it's really, really important. So how much time should founders spend on recruiting? Uh, where is the highest leverage points for founders to spend on recruiting? And how does that evolve over time? I think the thing that's nice about the star one is that the star one can pretty much work from day one. For a founder, there's all of this pressure to figure out your vision statement and your mission statement and to figure out your values within a really short time frame. And you're just like, oh my gosh, if I haven't figured out my mission statement until, you know, six months in or whatever it is, you know, maybe I'm just not, maybe I'm not a great founder. And the truth is that it, it takes a little while. I think the thing that's nice about the star one is it's something that you can apply from day one. It's something that you can immediately set up and you know, from day one, you're going to have quality hiring. I think the thing that ends up evolving is after six to 12 months or so, you start realizing how you handle all of these really, really tricky scenarios. So that could be, okay, somebody asked me for a raise because some their child is going to college next year, or I have a situation in which somebody isn't cleaning up after themselves in the break room, but they're a VP, right? Like, and so you end up trying to figure out all these kind of gray zone, really tricky situations that actually end up informing what your values are. And so you kind of end up spending the six to t- first six to 12 months wrestling with all these conflict situations that come your way and seeing how you have historically reacted to them and what felt right. And so you're probably not going to really be able to come up with values that are authentic to you until you've had some of that history. And then you use that and you're able to say, well, the, the thing that's interesting about the values is that you are going to need to address how you make decisions. You're going to need to address the pace. You're going to need to address how you bring people on and how you let them go. And it's how you do that that actually informs your values. And so it's much more helpful to have six to 12 months of history before you do that. Whereas from day one, if you are a founder, you can start off by hiring. You can start off working with some sort of framework to do your hiring, having the one to five starting to develop your checklist where you're just like, hey, listen, these are the questions that I'm asking. Maybe it varies a little bit for your engineers. Maybe it varies a little bit for your salespeople. And you just start developing a playbook of all these materials. The nice thing is once you have a really great job description, that job description is probably still going to be relevant for another two to three years. So you just start developing this huge library of hiring materials that just, even if your first job description isn't that great, they just continuously get better and better. What, what makes a great job description or what are people, maybe it was a specificity, but what are the most common mistakes that people make in their job description? Most common mistakes that people make in their job description is when you are listing the responsibilities of a particular role, you say, hey, the responsibility of this salesperson is to reach out to 50 new clients per week, period. And what you really should be doing is after every single bullet, you should be linking that back to the strategy of the organization. So if you took the average bullet, which is make 30 phone calls or whatever it is per week, so that 
we are able to hit our quarterly goal. And so linking every single one of those back to the actual strategy. I think people forget when you're reading a job description, you don't know the context. It's really hard to understand why this is important. And so if you add in that additional color, it just makes your job description come to life. Right. So I'm a CEO of a five-person, 10-person company. My I'm, heart goes out to you. Yes. So, <laughs> amen. Am yeah. I spending 70% of my time recruiting? How do I choose broadly how I, think, I spend my I time? I think most founders initially, they end up hiring from their group of friends, which is always kind of dangerous. It's like, okay, I'm hiring people who are most likely from my, my social circle. So that means that may not be necessarily the most diverse um, set of people, but it's where you start. What um, you know, I, I understand that. And then you have to start figuring out how to actually recruit externally once yeah. you've used up your network. And you have to just start, hey, you know, part of it's going to be job fairs, part of it's going to be passive recruiting, some of it is going to be job posting, some of it's going to be internal referrals, and you start developing all of those channels. And then you start looking at your metrics, and you start looking at where your bottlenecks are, and you go from there. How do I become a talent magnet as a a company? Is it just when I hit a certain level of success that sort of takes care of itself? Or are there there Series A companies that you've seen that hire exceptionally well, because they either have an unfair channel or... I don't know, just some different process? I don't think it happens overnight. I think one thing you can do immediately is you can make sure that every single person who leaves, you know, the majority of the people that you talk to, you're not going to hire. And that's an opportunity, though, for you to make sure that they still leave with a good impression. And so just making sure that you always end on a high note, as opposed to having that person feel really defeated, because it's likely that they will in the future say, oh, I interviewed there. I didn't get the job. But, you know, it's a really interesting company and I can see you being a a good fit. That's, That's your goal. When do I stop uh, screening and interviewing everybody myself? It really depends on how quickly you start training people. I found that even today, I, I find that the organization lags probably about 12 to 18 months behind myself. So the earlier that I start, then the less painful it will be in another 12 to 18 months. But kind of like Howard Hartenbaum telling me that, hey, most founders, spend, nobody wants to hear that. Totally. <laughs> And, and part of that true. time is how much of that time is recruiting is scaling out the work, scaling out the material, scaling out all. Yeah. Right. Like, so is that yeah. even more than individual screening and like it's building the tools versus individual? I mean, you're just doing it on the fly anyway. Yeah. So when do I think about management as a company? Like when do I, when do people start to have managing managers? I think founders get it earliest because they have no time. And I think one of the things that's really challenging for a founder is they hire their first, first rung of leaders and then they have zero time to be able to groom or train them. And so being able to start developing your values, being able to develop like, how are you going to set goals? How are you going to all function together is super, super important. So I think the earlier you can do that, the better. Right. Should my, me as a founder be spending most of my time in general at at five and at 50, building out playbooks, building out tools, making sure that the managers have everything they need? Or what do you think is... Checklist. Just do the checklist. If you're going to do one thing, just write a great checklist. And the checklist is not intended to be... We have a checklist that probably has, I don't know, 20 to 30 questions for every single category. And the goal is not to go through every single one of those items on the checklist. It takes probably about 10 to 15 minutes to go deep in any one question. And this is for, this is for interviews, interview mm-hmm. checklist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the goal is just to avoid that deer in headlights moment where somebody's just like, oh my gosh, I'm here and I don't know what question to ask and they can look yeah. down. But being able to have that and being able to start developing it for different levels, like your checklist for a product manager is going to be different right. than your checklist for an engineer. Yeah. And just to start developing that is super, super important and that will scale. And right. the thing, if you could have one good job description, managers, that's the first thing they do when you're like, yeah. hey, write a job description. The first thing they're going to do is look at yours. So if you can just write right. one good job description that will pay for itself so many times. Yeah. When do I bring on an HR team or HR person? I think it depends on the founders, right? Like if the founders are naturally good at that kind of stuff and it's going to be a little bit bit longer. I think at the point where the founder is spending more than 20 to 30% of their time dealing with HR issues, 
guess what? It's time. <laughs> if that happens to you on day two, or if that happens to you on, you know, year five. <laughs> yeah. When, when should I hire a product manager? Product manager. I think that that varies a ton within the organization. Bringing on a product manager is kind of the first step in terms of having a matrix organization. And you need to figure out at what point that actually makes sense. So there might be a time where I feel like I need a product manager, but I don't think the team can take it because we don't have our playbooks. As soon as you go, as soon as you bring in a a product manager, they're going to be like, Hey, where are your style guidelines? Where are your playbooks? Where do you do this? And if the team is still figuring that out or they don't have a consistent vocabulary, um, vocabulary, then I might wait another you know, six months, depending upon the organization, what my goals are to be able to do that. But I don't think there's going to be a one size fit all answer for that. Yeah. So we've talked about playbooks as it relates to hiring, recruiting meetings. Well, and just finish loop on meetings, the different kinds of meetings. There are, you know, interviews, there are one-on-ones, there are annual reviews. Are there other kinds of meetings? There are team meetings. I guess what are other kind of like sort of template meetings within the organization that people should prepare for or have playbooks on? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that that assumes that you want to have lots of meetings. Right. And I don't really want yeah. that, right? If I, right. Can have a, if I can have a more nimble organization that doesn't right. have tons of uh, meetings, that's even better. Yeah. I think for me, probably the more important part is to kind of talk about what, how do you have difficult conversations? And I would much rather talk about like, hey, listen, when we have conflicts, how are we going to be able to talk about those conflicts and be able to define the rules of engagement up front? Right. And how do we do that? The style that I like the most, and I think this is also taught at Stanford's Touchy Feeling, there are lots of different places, but is... The idea of when you see something that is awry, then you lead with a an I notice statement where it's like, hey, I notice that it's such and such. And then within Dandelion Chocolate, anybody who goes through onboarding, they have to go through probably 10 to 15 difficult scenarios and be able to respond to it. And so the first one that they have to do is they have to say, hey, listen, let's say that, you know, you're expecting somebody to come at 10 and they come at 1015. Go. Right. And so you're supposed to say, hey, I noticed you're here at 1015 as opposed to 10. You pause. You wait for the person to respond. Then you, no one can change unless they feel like they've been heard. So then after you have made that statement and then heard the feedback, you repeat the feedback, which is like, hey, I hear that the bus is really, really slow. I get that. I hate the 22-2. You know, in, in the future, if you can just give me a heads up. And so it's just like being positive and forward thinking. And then that's step one. And then there are different levels of having difficult conversations. And so like step 15 is that, they have to tell somebody that they have um, that they have body odor. Wow! <laughs> and another one. Then there's another one where they have to step in and they have to tell the FedEx guy that they're hitting on a coworker inappropriately. Oh my god! Yeah. So it's just like there are like different levels. So by the end of that onboarding session, you know, having a difficult meeting to figure out what you know product priorities are, no problem. Mm-hmm. Like we've already defined what that's going to look like. Everybody kind of understands what is an appropriate and inappropriate conversation, and we go from there. So that's, d- just for the lesson, how do you tell somebody that they have bad body odor or that? The best way that I know how to handle this so far is to say, hey, I think I'm sensitive to your body odor. Recruiting. We've talked about culture. We should really talk about the recruiting honeypot. That is an okay, interesting let's talk story. About it. So a long, long, long time ago, one of the reasons that I got so interested in recruiting originally was because there came a day when, when we were trying to deliver upon our first real revenue metrics within Mevo. And we did all of our annual planning and we figured out how many, how much we needed in sales by Q4. We backtracked to how many engineers we would need to be able to build it. And then we backtracked to how many engineers, JavaScript engineers, I was going to need to hire in Q1 to be able to make this happen. And I, I don't remember exactly how many it was, but it was a lot. And within the same time frame, I remember that was like, I don't know, December or so. Within the same time frame, and I kid you not, we had, I think, we had three recruiters and we had a recruiting manager at the time. And within about 
third, I knew my problems. I mean, like that was just, it was such like finding JavaScript people at that time. This was before there were lots of frameworks and there were probably only about maybe a hundred people in the world who would satisfy our requirements. Google had already hired a ton of them. It was just like such an impossible challenge. And then on top of that, I found out that two, three, I don't remember exactly now, of the people who were on a recruiting team um, were pregnant. And they were all going to be out very, very soon on maternity leave, which was great news. I was super, super happy for them. But all of a sudden, my challenges went from here to like, you know, 10x what I thought. I was already losing sleep. And now I was just like, this is just an insurmountable problem. What am I going to do? So I was losing sleep. I was just super stressed. And I said, and I remember there was just one night where it was just like, if I, you know, like now my, my problem is no longer just finding JavaScript people. It's finding amazing recruiters who I can train and scale up really, really quickly. And I thought, how am I going to find these amazing recruiters? And so then in the middle of the night, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create the perfect JavaScript person online. And it's going to be a persona. And I called him Pete London at the time. And it's going to be a mix of my backgrounds, other people's backgrounds. So it wasn't like completely fictitious. And in the middle of the night, I just said, okay, I happen to have Pete London as a domain name for a lot of other totally random reasons. I was like, great. Holy cow. I can't believe that I have this in my back pocket. And so I created this like really this WordPress page that said, hey, my name is Pete London. I love coding JavaScript. You can always invite me to coffee or whatever. And then posted a resume. And I was just like, great, this is this is it. This is how I'm going to do it. I, I just posted this like honeypot out there, this JavaScript honeypot. I'm just going to wait to see which recruiters reach out to my honeypot. And those are the recruiters that I am going to hire. And so I did it. And so I left it out there and I was just, I was so excited. And the first week or two, I was just like, well, this is it. I'm going to figure it out. Like who, who are the best people in the Bay area who are hiring JavaScript people? I want, want to hear from them. And it was just crickets. Like I didn't hear anything at all. I was just like, what's going on? And so then probably around like week three or four, I just got increasingly desperate. And I said, okay, I'm going to take this one step further and I'm going to put Pete London's profile on LinkedIn. And that was it. I had no idea how much of a difference that was going to make. And so it went from basically hearing nothing to hearing the number of queries that came in just exploded. And so unfortunately, it was still too late to be able to do my hiring thing, but I ended up just leaving it up for two to three years. And I ended up accumulating, I don't even know how many hundreds. I mean, it's even still up today. Like I'm still getting queries. And so I ended up getting, I don't remember how many hundreds or thousands of these queries. And it was my my airplane project where I would take all these queries and I started to develop a framework for evaluating all of these different responses I got from recruiters. And so I went through and I hand scored every single one. You can see some, some similarities here. I hand scored every single one, not on a one to five, but on a one to three scale based upon did they talk about the role? Did they talk about the company? Did they talk about the manager? Was it personalized? Yeah. Went through, developed. And then I started scoring them. And I said, hey, how does the recruiter do? How does the manager do? How does the founder do? And then I started doing an analysis on who actually does the best job of recruiting. I also did broke out by internal and external recruiting. And the truth is that no one hires better than founders. There's just no way you can't do it. you know. And so there are certain traps that Managers do a pretty good job, but founders are going to have more word link. They're going to talk talk in more depth. They're going to write more personalization. Like the truth is that no one no one cares like founders. You say simulation is fifty percent of the interviewing experience or process. What does that mean? Where do people get it wrong, or what do people not see about how important that is? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the goal is to be able to avoid any first day surprises. And a lot of times, especially if you're working with a new interviewing team, they may have really really high scores. But perhaps your team is just green and they aren't evaluating people. The simulation will catch it. And it also just gives you a really good indication of how somebody will perform. So for instance, like in a simulation within Mebo, we had everybody as a simulation 
for JavaScript, they had to code a virtual keyboard. So the idea was that they had to create a keyboard, and when they tapped it, it would populate um, a text input field. Later on, we talked about moving to doing something where they had to code Hangman. They had to code whatever it is. But the goal with it is to be able to actually test the skills. The other thing that I do in that is I usually have some sort of role-playing exercise where I have some sort of conflict and I want to see, do they escalate? Like if I have a conflict within that, are they the type of person who will escalate it or will they de-escalate it, maintain their calm? And then I test anything else in that process like systems or, for instance, um, a product manager simulation. The product manager simulation that um, I had most recently, their first goal was to be able to give me, they had to design a product for St. Patrick's Day. I was like, give me a product for St. Patrick's Day. It doesn't even matter what it is. And one of the things that's important with the simulation is you can't actually ask somebody to give you real work. So we ended up just making it about St. Patrick's Day. Then they had to be able to show me how they would develop a plan. Then they had to actually lead a meeting where they had multiple stakeholders and every single person had a role to be able to see how they would lead that meeting. And then based upon that, have a pretty good indication of how well that person performs in these different areas. And for some roles, I even do a second simulation where if I have any red flags or if I have anything that I'm not totally certain about, then I will actually create a new simulation that is tailored just for that person for the second one. So for a product manager, I might have them come in. And if I feel like I haven't necessarily tested something, I might have them come back in and give feedback on a product. It's like, how good is their eye or how, um, or if they haven't, if I'm still having questions about planning or whatever it is, then I'll have them come in and be like, Hey, listen, start specking this out. Tell me what your, show me what your flow looks like. So honestly, if you can get the simulation right, and you're still working with a green team, you're going to be able to catch a lot of, a lot of mistakes. And to resummarize the key components of what makes a simulation good from what makes it one poor is I like to be able to have three to four tasks that are different. And so one of them on an engineering, one of them might be being able to start something from scratch. One of them might be being able to take existing code and being yeah. able to, to work from it. Um, and then I also want to be able to do some sort of role-playing exercise where maybe they have to do a code review or if they, have to, they have to reconcile something or they've lost code and they have to be able to you know, try and recover from that in a team setting. So my goal is to have three or four little mini challenges. The other thing is that I think one of the main mistakes that people make in the simulation is that they... They create the most perfect simulation, but it's going to take four to eight hours to complete. And right. so I've ended up just being like, hey, make sure every single task yeah. um, is maybe, uh, I mean, my, my my simulations right now are kind of cruel. They're like five, 15 to 30 minutes for, and sometimes they're even shorter than that. Because I just say, hey, listen, I can tell with really, really early if somebody's on the right track or not. Yeah. And I'd rather not waste time. I'd rather just like go through and get it all done. So I've had really, really short tasks before. And do you have a strong framework about, hey, people shouldn't be spending any more than 20 hours in your whole interview process, whether it's from take-home work to on-site or, or sort of the varies? And Yeah, I think you can really lose candidates that way. So you have yeah. to be really careful about that. I think it varies depending upon what level somebody's interviewing at. If I am interviewing somebody um, who is in a leadership position and I end up throwing the simulation at them before I've had a chance to talk with them or be able to kind of socialize a little bit right. more, that's going to be kind of offensive. <laughs> so it's like, Hey, listen, we haven't chatted, but you know, go code hangman, right? Like that just does not sit well. And so there is kind of a certain requirement, a number of hours that you just want to be able to, or not hours, but there's a certain, like, I just want to make sure that they know me and that they know I'm going to be working together on the simulation. It doesn't strike them as a surprise. If I'm talking to somebody who's straight out of school and they're just like, let me show you what I've got. They are going to be so happy if the first thing they do is a simulation because it gives them an opportunity to prove themselves. Um, whereas they may not have as much, um, as many stories to be able to draw from, um, in an interviewing context. So I kind of balance it out in terms of the duration the interview process. I'm just super, super careful. I think every single person is different, 
but um, usually people are taking time away from their previous job <laughs> in order to be able to consider your organization. And so it's like, make sure you're on time. If you know somebody is on a time crunch, being super, super respectful of that, is it easier for them to take full days away? Is it easier for them to take half days away? But if I've had somebody come in more than two times and I don't know I'm going to close them, then unless it's like for a really, really senior level and we need to be able to do more socialization, then that's kind of a red flag for me. I really don't want to do that. And so you can try and put as much on the phone screen as you can. There are lots of different ways to be able to navigate it, but you will lose candidates. Yeah. And any non-obvious or contrarian principles around hiring executives? You know, when you get to the leadership level, you have this sense of a 360 where you know how people who report to you feel about you, you know about how your colleagues um, feel about you. And then at that that level, you also know about how the board thinks about you. And I want to be able to, in the interview process, I really think about that more as a 360, where I want to be able to understand exactly at every single level how an executive is performing um, and be able to go from there. It's not very contrarian, but that's just the way I think about it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You know, there's a balance between selling and, and evaluating. One of the things I just tweeted out is that underrated skill is managing expectations, specifically selling while also under-promising and then over-delivering. Great question. Yeah. Great question. So yeah. it's a, it's, I don't know how to do that, but <laughs> it's, a good, okay. it's a good skill to have. No, no, no. no. It's a do, great I, skill to have. Yeah. Okay. So do do yeah, 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 for sure. So I think that typically happens around the director level. So the director level, um, you have... Uh, especially for people who are new directors, they're just like, oh my gosh, I love my job, except my VP is crazy. That's what most directors will say. They're just like, I just don't understand. Like, <laughs> And you can kind of understand where they're coming from because the VP, they come back from some trip and they're like, you guys, like, let me tell you about it. I just went to this conference and blah, 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 blah. And the director's just like, I'm the one who actually makes that happen. And I don't think that's feasible. And we already have a roadmap that's planned for two years. So you're telling me to go like turn, you know, are we, are we, making a U-turn right now. Like what's up crazy, crazy VP. And for the poor director who's in the, sh- in, in, in those shoes, they're speaking to themselves. Okay. Crazy VP has come to me and they've said, Hey, I want to do such and such. And the director thinks that they only have two options. They can say, they can say no and look weak or they can say yes, but ultimately fail. And most directors, what would you do? You say no or say yes. I would under promise. You would underpromise. Yes. So you would say no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then try and do it. I don't know. So most uh, most directors will actually try and say yes, but knowing that the project is ultimately going to fail, <laughs> <laughs> yes. which is a horrible spot to be in. And then yeah. the VP later is just like, well, you knew it was going to fail. Why didn't right. you tell me? And it's hard, but in the moment, if you can come back, the issue with that is that the VP isn't thinking about things from the director's perspective. They don't know why this is hard. They don't know why this is challenging. So the goal is for the director at that point not to come back and say yes or no, but say, hey, listen, if this is really, really important, here are the three things, you know, we can spend more money on this. We can spend more time on this. We need to hire more people to be able to get there, but to be able to frame things in terms of business consequences and say, is it worth it? And that way it's not a yes or no decision, but it becomes a, hey, here are three paths and we can talk about it. And that way it just becomes a much more constructive conversation rather than like the VP says, I have a crazy idea. And the director says, yeah, runs away. <laughs> totally. You, you want to get people excited about opportunities. One of your philosophies also is don't dangle carrots. Is that correct? So one of my philosophies is don't dangle carrots, especially in the hiring process. This is kind of a mistake. Oftentimes when you're in the hiring and in the interview, somebody will say, Hey, listen, I really like this role, but I'm really, I want to know if a promotion would be possible in the next six to 12 months. And I would love to be able to promote somebody in six to 12 months. There's no question, but I'm really careful about not letting in that moment, not saying yes. And that's hard. It's just like, hey, listen, you know, let's, we, I try to make sure that when we're hiring somebody that they're going to be in this role for at least a year. If that's not going to work for you, then maybe this isn't the right role. And that way I avoid that. You avoid so many other issues long, 
long yeah. long term because they might be chafing or how do you think about decision making one building processes around decision making and two when it should be consensus versus I think decision making especially in a contact in the product context I think it really depends upon where ideas come from in an organization and so in an organization ideas generally come from one of three places they come from um, the sense of having a visionary. And so that's kind of like the Steve Jobs approach where you feel like you have one person who would just make those calls and, you know, who knows. And the downside of that one is that um, within the organization, people are going to ask, why you? Why are you the right person? If you're the PM who's just being able to say like, hey, listen, I feel like this is the right way to go. People are just being like, well, who who put you in charge? Um, the second place it can come from is metrics. And so it's just like, hey, listen, we're, we are fast followers and we've seen this new trend in the market. And so we're going to move in that direction. You see that a lot in gaming where it's just like, hey, there's this new explosion of whatever game. We're going to make sure that we have something in this market. The third one is where you ask the, um, where you ask users and you say, hey, listen. And that one ultimately wins, leads itself. If you listen to, to users too closely and only do what users want, that ultimately leads, leads to real estate you know, other markets that I really don't want to talk about on podcasts. So, yeah. <laughs> so you have to kind of balance those. And that's where the decision-making comes from. It's like, if you can identify that, then you can at least have more constructive conversations. Right. Yep. And you, you, one thing you also talk about is how you can measure a company's health by how much employees are referring other people to join their company. So besides give everybody a great experience, how do you <laughs> incentivize or how do you think about empowering people to, to refer others. I think it's just like, there's so many different facets to it. You know, I don't think there's, I think people are always looking for that one size fit all. And the truth is that it's just so many different things. And so it's how you set goals. It's how you let people go. It's do, do you, do people feel like the leveling is fair? Do you feel like people be, do feel people feel like quality people are being brought into the organization or decisions being made in a way that people understand and respect? And a lot of that is going to have to do with your organization and what's, what's right. Yeah. Have you explored as an investor uh, startups in the recruiting space? One thing I've been looking for is I, I wonder if there are startups that can help companies make better referrals, like leverage their network better. Like if you were to come to me and say, hey, what product managers do you know? I'm like, I don't know. What companies are best for my needs? I would just think top of mind. There isn't sort of a great filtering mechanism. And two, a startup that helped give better information on talent. Like we're, do, we're d- doing all this double work when we reference check people that's not going anywhere on the internet. And is there something that could store some of that information? Those are some of the ideas that I thought like about. You, it sounds like you need to start something. Now. Yes, I will. <laughs> I think the thing that I think would be interesting is if there were more. One of the things that gets shortchanged in the interview process is the fit between the individual and their manager. And I think if if there were some way to be able to help people find really good fits for themselves, and I think a lot of that has to do with personality. I think a lot of that has to do with management styles. If there were some way to be like, hey, listen, you know, OK, Cupid style, you are an 85% match with this manager. I think that would be really interesting. But have I seen that organization? No, there are a lot of recruiting startups up there. I would, at some point, I would love to be able to see this space. In closing, Elaine has put on a clinic uh, and we've uh, outlined the Elaine uh, book of recruiting, maybe graphic novel uh, of team building generally. Uh, what might be in the conclusion or how would you, how would you close or how would you leave listeners with? I think the piece of feedback I would give is if you are a founder and you are spending 50 to 60 percent of your time or more just doing hiring, that's okay. And that's what you're supposed to be doing. You're not <laughs> alone. Nobody else will tell you that. Yes. And those, all of the time you're spending now will pay off in the long run. So you're doing something right. <laughs> Perfect. And for people who want to learn more about your work and your investing, where can you point them to or which should they uh, learn more about what's to come for, from Elaine? I'm on Twitter under Elaine Weary and my blog is elaineweary.com. So and there's a fun name for entrepreneurs, inquiring entrepreneurs? It'll buy VC. So thank you so much, Elaine. This has been so great. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. 
If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 